Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29, and it's your pew Bible is 8, 12. And chapter 8, verse 1. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I think I said that right. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a deceased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Thanks, Jürgen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray you'd open our hearts to hear it and to receive it and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're, uh, if you're new or visiting, uh, my name's Nick. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, great to have you here. Please come find me afterwards. Love to say hi and get to know you. On Monday, uh, a week ago, received a note from Eston College, which is the college uh, that our fellowship's a part of, ACOP, a uh, college that Sarah and I went to, and Brian and a few others. And they were wondering if we wanted to put an ad in the yearbook. They send this all the time, so we were deciding what to put in. Kind of a word of congratulations to the graduates and that kind of thing. It got me thinking about when I graduated from Eston, and uh, Dean Pinter, who was our New Testament prof, gave the charge to the graduates, and he encouraged us to continue on in uh, the quest of life, that that following Jesus is to embark on an epic quest, and you need to uh, equip yourself with faith, hope, and love to put these on 
as graduates, as you discern sort of the next chapter in our lives. This, uh, this passage here in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the last sermon in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've called it Fresh Start. It's all about the invitation to a new life in Jesus. And here we come now to Jesus' last words in that sermon. It's like his last call to the group before they move on, before they come down off the mountain. And there's echoes here of, a, of another speech. And I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, I can't remember exactly when, uh, that Jesus' teaching on the mountain, this is a parallel to Moses coming off the mountain with the law in Israel's scriptures, that Israel in their history have this moment where they come to Mount Sinai and God reveals himself on the mountain, and then the word of God comes to them from the mountain, and it's the word that they're called to live out. It's like a charter of life, and it's, it's what marks them as God's people, this unique call to live and to follow Yahweh. And here Jesus, is you can think of the parallels, Jesus is up on the mountain and now the people are with him and Jesus is giving a, a new law in some ways where he's saying, you've heard this, but now I tell you this. And so this is now a new Torah, a new teaching, a new law as God is fulfilling uh, the call to come and be the, the, uh, the true prophet to the people, a new prophet to the people. And so Jesus is giving a new Torah, but now it's all wrapped up around himself. And in the same way, here at, uh, at the end of his life, Moses, he gave a similar call to the people from on top of a mountain when he was giving his final goodbye to the Israelites. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy. It's this long sort of farewell address that Moses gives to them. And uh, Rodney Reeves, who writes a commentary on Matthew, he says, uh, Moses' call from the mountain is like a last-ditch effort. He's calling the people to heed the warnings, uh, to choose life. And Moses continually tells them, when you enter the land, it's like he knows he's not going to go with Israel into the land. But Mo- Moses calls them to this moment of decision. And he says, I've set before you life and death. I've set before you blessings and cursing. So choose life so you and your children can live. That's Moses. And now Jesus, as a new Moses, is doing a very similar thing. He's setting before the crowds the choice. Choose life or choose death. It's sort of like a graduation address. He places before each of them, and I want to suggest he places before each of us this morning that same choice. Choose life or choose death. Choose blessing or choose cursing. It's up to you. God gives you the freedom to choose that. And like Moses, the way Jesus is talking, it almost sounds like he won't be there with the disciples. He says, uh, you need to enter through the narrow gate. You need to learn how to deal with false teachers. He calls them to find the narrow gate. He calls them to discern the teachers, sort of on their own almost is the sense. So the disciples, once Jesus has ascended, won't have him physically present with them to sort of help them navigate this stuff. They're going to have to rely on hearing the voice of the Spirit and on discerning through Jesus' own words how to choose life and, and how to avoid the way of death. So in other words, Jesus is ending his sermon here with the same emphasis that Moses ended his big farewell speech to Israel centuries before, and it's similar again to the way my friend and mentor Dean gave his graduation charge. It's up to us as the hearers to decide how we will live.
We need to choose each day how we're going to live. We often say to uh, a new couple when they're getting married, you will say I do at your wedding ceremony, but you will need to say I do every day of your married life. You will choose each day how you're going to live. You may have come to faith in Jesus at some point in your life, um, but God calls us to choose every day to want to follow him. And it's the way of life or a way of death. And as in Moses' day, God uh, calls us to do his will, not just to hear what he says, but to actually live it out, to listen and to obey, right? To hear the word and then also to do it, to put it into practice. And so Jesus talks about two gates, he talks about fruit, and then he talks about two foundations. We're going to go through each one of those. He starts with the gates. This is verses uh, 13, 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, the gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Again, Jesus is putting before us two options. And he sounds a lot like Moses and a lot like the other prophets through Israel's history as well. I want to read to you Moses's words from Deuteronomy, which Jesus is echoing. Uh, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 11. He says, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command to you today, And the curse, if you don't obey the commands of the Lord your God and you turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today and go after other gods that you have not known. Uh, In this framework, a person is either obedient or rebellious, right? They're either wise or they're foolish. And we might hear that and think, Jesus, that's really simplistic, right? That's pretty black and white. Either you're following or you're not. You're either living into life in Christ and following him and choosing wisdom or not. But Jesus is drawing on this tradition that Moses and the prophets often had of speaking, of of saying either choose to follow God or not, this kind of two paths sort of thing. Paul in Romans 6 describes it as the choice to uh, follow Christ or to be enslaved to sin, right? And uh, Psalm does this too. Psalm 1 makes the same contrast. There's two ways. There's the righteous or the wicked. And one is like a well-planted tree whose roots have good water and good nutrients and it bears fruit. And the other way is uh, to have your life be kind of like old, useless, dried up chaff that just is nothing good other than to kind of blow away in the wind or to be burned up, right? And the key call for us is this. Again, all of us every day make decisions to be on a path of life and wisdom to follow God or to not, right? It's not like you have a choice whether to be on the path or not. You're on a path. Uh, you will either love God or not. There's kind of no neutrality here. It's either you're moving in the right direction or you're not. Um, it's hard because in our world today, there's sort of a lot who, who operate with the assumption that there's a lot of paths to God. There's many paths to God. Um, but the Jews and the early Christians, the way they saw it, there's only one way to God. All other ways ultimately don't lead to God. They lead to destruction. 
And the idea that all all religions are basically the same or they all eventually get you to God, uh, it's, it's just sort of simply factually wrong. Like not all religions even claim to get you to God at the end. Some of them don't promise that. Christianity does, that you have an encounter with God and you get to, get to be with him. But not all religions even claim to do that. Um, so to say, well, they're all kind of the same is, is, is really kind of ignorant, actually. If you've ever felt that way, I'm sorry, but it, it really kind of is. Um, Ravi Zacharias, who's a Christian apologist, he puts it this way. He says, rather than assuming that all religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different, the reverse is actually true. Religions are only superficially the same, but their fundamental claims are different. And many, not just Christianity, but Islam and, and Buddhism, claim exclusivity, that their way is, is the way. So to say that these are all the same paths are, are really kind of ignorant. Um, here Jesus is calling us to make a choice between two paths. It's not that every path is right. It's not that as long as you follow your heart and you feel good about it, and you're not hurting anyone, that it's okay. Right? It's not a sort of moral relativism. It's, no, no, there is a path of life and another path that will lead to death. In Christianity, what's so unique about our faith is we believe God has come to meet us in the person of Jesus Christ, that God himself enters into human flesh and comes and makes his dwelling with us, that there's a relational God, not a distant God, but a relational God who we can come and get to know. And here Jesus is God himself calling us to heed these words, to listen and to find true life and purpose and meaning in him. And so as the sermon ends with these two paths or these two gates before us, you have the way of life, the narrow gate, or the way of hypocrisy, which is broad and well-populated. And Jesus says, the narrow one's the one that few find, right? We're all traveling down the path. We have lots of, lots of points where the, the paths sort of maybe get pretty close and almost merge and then diverge again. And there's moments where we can kind of step off one and step onto the other. But we're always traveling towards somewhere. And Jesus calls us to make the choice. Where will you travel and to whom will you go? It's an important choice, isn't it? I think it's, it's probably the, one of the most important choices we could make. It's one of the most important choices you can make this morning. What path are you going to walk down? What choice ultimately is going to be the one that defines your life? What's that going to look like? Now, the choice seems kind of obvious. Like, I want to pick the life gate. Like, duh. Right? I want the one that's good, not the one that's no good. But there's kind of a catch because Jesus makes it plain that the narrow gate, the way of righteousness, actually leads to a troubled path. It's not the easy way. The word here for, for, uh, for narrow, or sometimes it's called straight, it's often translated as distressed or persecuted or troubled. It's the troubled path. 1 Thessalonians 3 says, not that the troubles that you experience should come as any surprise to you. You've always known that we're in for this kind of thing. It's part of our calling. That's why many speak of the Jesus way as passing through the small gate that will lead to trouble. Because after all, Jesus says, it's the merciful and the meek and the forgiving who are often persecuted. 
And so Jesus then goes immediately to describe some of the trouble that people who choose the narrow path and the narrow gate encounter. And one of those troubles is false teachers. This is the next, next section, verses 15 to 23. He says, when you walk through the narrow gate, when you're staying on the path of trying to follow Jesus and live for him, you need to be aware of others who claim they are, but really aren't. And how do you discern that? Jesus says you discern it by looking at the fruit of their life. The fruit of their life proves the kind of person they are. They might profess they believe in Jesus, but they don't really live it. And although people may go to them looking for good fruit, looking for nourishment on the path, instead of finding good fruit, they find rotten fruit. They find something that doesn't lead to life. And it seems like it should be fairly easy to kind of discern this, like, this person, there's things in their life that have resulted because they've made bad choices, and so, like, that's not great fruit, you know? And then this person, like, has a good, good legacy, and so, like, that must be good. But the Bible tells us time and time again that the followers of God, um, the people of God, often have a hard time deciding who's a true prophet or a true teacher and who isn't. In fact, all through the Old Testament, Israel often listens to the false prophets and then tosses out or kills the true prophets. And so there's this indication that this seems like it should be obvious, but actually our hearts are slippery. And the reason that's hard is because the false prophets often tell us what we want to hear. And so we like that and we kind of lean into that. And true prophets who call people back to faithfulness in God and call people to repentance, which is convicting and hard. It's kind of hard to admit, like, I'm really wrong and messed up, right? That's not nice. Like, it doesn't feel good. I like to go with this person who tells me it's all good. This person's telling me to, you know, pull myself together. I don't like you, right? And so the idea is it's it, often in Israel's history, they make the wrong choice, and, and, the, and it's easy for us to kind of make the wrong choice, too. It seems like it should be easy. But too often, Israel rejects the true prophets because they don't like what they hear. And so Jesus is calling us as disciples to be wise about discerning this kind of thing, right? You recognize false prophets by their fruit. Healthy trees produce good fruit, and diseased trees bear bad fruit. So what fruit do you produce? It's kind of a personal question here, too, is when people look at you, what fruit do they, do they see in you? Like, what kind of legacy are you going to leave? Like, what are your kids going to talk about they remember you for years from now? Or your grandkids or your neighbors, right? Like, were you just the crotchety one? Or were you the person that loved them? You know, like, what, what kind of fruit are you going to bear? What are you, what are you going to be known for in your life? What's it? You were the person that posted funny things on Facebook. Brilliant. Great good for you, right? And that's it. <laughs> awesome. You know, or did, did people actually, when they came away from an encounter with you, did they actually come away more alive? Right? If God is all about life, and that's what the resurrection's all about, is the life of God. This is about life. Do people, when they encounter you, experience the life of Jesus? Or do they come away feeling drained and <laughs> discouraged, you know? It's a sobering call, isn't it? That there's people who might manipulate things to seem like they're godly but aren't. And that's hard. And it's, it's, again, not a call to be judgmental, which we talked about, I think it was last week, but a call to be discerning, to be wise, right? There's no call here to then condemn the false teacher. 
but simply to recognize the fruit, to try and evaluate well, is this person for Christ or not? And it's a sobering call. I think the the words in verse 21 are especially sobering, right? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not just saying you're a Christian that matters. It's actually living it out, right? That's what that means. You can't just say, I love Jesus, and then turn around and do something that is entirely opposite of what that life should look like right? Your words need to match with your life. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. And then this part, which is especially interesting. Verse 22, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus seems to be saying something like this, that that it's possible that a person can prophesy in the name of Jesus and perform signs and wonders and even cast out demons and do all kinds of mighty works and actually not know Jesus. And you think, how can that be, right? Like that's a sobering, especially in a Pentecostal church, right? That's a sobering thought. When we believe and we practice healing and praying for people and prophetic ministry and we believe in miracles and deliverance and we, you know, and that, thing, that sort of thing does happen, what do we do with that? And Jesus isn't saying that those signs are bad. He's not saying don't, you know, that prophecy is bad or miracles are bad. He's not saying that. He's saying only those things aren't the fruit you look for. That's not the indication of fruit. You don't look at how many people a person's helped to heal or, or uh, you know, to see if that person's a, a true or false prophet. That's not the indicator. You actually, instead, you look at the fruit of their life. Are they compassionate? Are they forgiving? Are they loving? Are they at peace? In the economy of Jesus, it seems... You can have an impressive, charismatic speaker who does all sorts of miracles and casts out demons and prophesies who actually is not a follower of Jesus. Who Jesus says, at the end of the day, I don't know you. That must mean the flip side is true, I think. You can have someone who has no influential position at all, who sits quietly in church, who serves where they can, who seeks to do the will of God, and they are welcomed into the kingdom. It's not so much about the miraculous signs here. It it, it seems to be the signs aren't the true indication, at least, of your heart. It's the fruitfulness, the character. It's our actions that indicate our inner life. Building a life on Jesus, being in relationship with him, matters more than doing dramatic, powerful signs. And Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians, right? You can speak in tongues and prophesy and have faith to move mountains, but if you don't do it in love, if you don't know what it means to be in a loving relationship with Jesus and to love other people, it's worthless. And I think often in the Gospels where where people are clamoring for Jesus to do fancy signs, it's almost like they just want magic tricks, right? And Jesus says, not going to do it. 
This is not about doing miracles to make you feel giddy. I'll show you the real sign. Here's the sign. And it's when he's lifted up at the cross. This is the, this is the God you serve. Not the God who does fancy miracles when you like it. It's the God who lays down his life for you and defeats death and then invites you into life with him so that you don't have to experience uh, death and separation from God, right? It doesn't mean that the signs are bad. They're just signs. They're meant to point to Jesus. But love is the fruit. Love is the legacy. And so to discern true and false teachers Don't be enamored with power, but look at the fruit. Look at their character. Look at the legacy. And that's a choice. It's a choice between life and death, choosing who do you listen to, who do you follow. Again, it doesn't mean the signs are bad. It doesn't mean we don't pray for healing. It just means be aware, as Jesus says here, there's people who will be able to do all kinds of fancy, crazy stuff. And you go, wow, they must really know Jesus. Not necessarily. doesn't mean everyone who does is bad. Like, don't twist what I'm saying, okay? Don't take it the wrong way. I'm just, but do you hear what Jesus says here? It's a little bit intense. Not everyone who claims, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the one who does the will of my Father. And on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did all kinds of stuff. And Jesus says, I didn't know you. That's a sobering thought. The call is not to be enamored by power or manifestations, but to live out a life with God. And those things will come. That's up to God. That charismatic stuff, that's up to God. That'll happen. It's all good. But don't let that be what uh, helps you discern whether someone is true or false. You look at the fruit of their life. And so Jesus ends it with another choice, ends the sermon. We've got the narrow gate and the wide gate. We've got the true teachers and the false teachers. And then here at the end, we have the wise and the foolish builders. This is 24, 27. And the meaning's like pretty, pretty straightforward, right? If you build your life on the, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, if you build your life on Jesus, uh, if you choose wisdom, you'll be able to weather life's storms. That's basically the gist of it, right? So whether this is sort of day-to-day life or it's warning of like future persecutions against the church and that kind of thing, whatever it is, Jesus' words are pretty clear here. He says, you can make it through hard stuff by listening and doing what I teach you. You won't fall apart when the bad things happen because you've been prepared for them. Right? The wise person hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And the foolish person doesn't. And so the results is their life becomes devastated when when things happen to them. And you remember Jesus, he's sitting up on the mountain as he's speaking this, right? And he's encouraging the crowds to build their life on him like his words are the firm foundation. His words will be like the mountain, right? You don't need to look anywhere else. And neither do we. We don't need to look anywhere else. This is the source of life and truth and salvation. If you do what Jesus says, if you choose to live in him, to obey his words, to repent, and to believe, and to follow him. Then when the persecution comes, and the floods come, and the troubles come, they don't need to ultimately overwhelm us. Because the storms will come, right? Real trouble will come. But as Jesus' disciples, we can learn to weather the storm because we've chosen to follow him to the end. 
It's not that you won't have trouble if you follow Jesus. It's that the trouble won't ultimately overwhelm you. Both the, both the guy building on the rock and the guy building on the sand get storms, right? It's not a prosperity doctrine. It's not follow Jesus and your life will forever be awesome and no one will ever hurt you and you'll never be sad and, like, no one will ever die in your life. Like, it's not that, right? It's saying, no, the stuff will happen. It will be very hard at times, but you won't be alone and you won't, uh, you won't ultimately be overwhelmed by this because you have Jesus with you. That's what it's about. So the storms are going to come. There's no question about that. If you're li- this would be a good indication of false and true teachers. If someone starts telling you, this drives me nuts. If someone starts telling you, if you follow Jesus, um, you'll never ha- experience any kind of difficulty, just run the other way. You're, we follow the crucified God. This is the one who embraces suffering and who says, remember First Thessalonians, that verse I read, we know there'll be trouble. This is part of the call. The world will hate us because of him. But don't be afraid. He's overcome the world, right? I will be with you always. Bad stuff can happen. And it is really bad. I'm not saying it's not bad. But it need not ultimately destroy or overwhelm us because we have Jesus. So it's little wonder then that the crowds are astonished at this, right? No one speaks like this. No one has the authority to say this kind of stuff. These are the words of Yahweh himself. This is the the way to righteousness that exceeds all the Pharisees' rules, right? This is the way to live with a a confidence of who we are in God, to follow Jesus. And so Jesus gets up, and he starts to go down the mountain. This is chapter 8, verse 1. What do we see? Great crowds followed him. Now, will they all believe and put it into practice and live it out? That remains to be seen as you go through the rest of Matthew. But Jesus gets up, and he starts to go down the mountain. And I get this picture that he's been teaching for a while, right? There's been a lot of hearing his words. But now Jesus gets up and goes down. It's almost like, it's almost like he gets up to go down and live out his teaching in practice, in real life, right? He gets up to go down and to be with the broken people and to be with those that are hurting. In fact, the next verse is what? He's cleansing a leper. He heals many. He's calming the storm. He heals the paralytic. Jesus gets up from teaching to go and live it out. And the crowds follow him. Folks, the invitation for every one of us this morning is to move from the place of hearing teaching to then going and putting it into practice. It's not complete to just hear it and then not live it. Jesus calls us to move from the mountain, from being taught on a Sunday, to then living out what we heard in the day-to-day lives of our, of our regular week, to move off the mountain and into the villages, to move out from the church and into our workplaces and our families, and our schools. Do you see how that works? We're not just gathered to sort of just be together. We're gathered in order to then be sent out. And so that's why every Sunday I like to end with the benediction that you are then sent out with this word fresh upon your hearts, the Spirit of God alive in you. We don't just go to hear and feel nice feelings and think nice thoughts, right? It's to go to be re-energized, 
to meet with Jesus and then follow him in ministry and in mission back out into the world. Jesus gets up off the mountain. Great crowds follow him. Out as he goes to then uh, love people, to embrace others. He goes down into the community, into the place of mission. And he calls us to go and do the same thing, to give our lives, to pour out our lives in love and ministry to others. And so we're called to come off the mountain to, into our relationships, heading out into mission. Which way will you choose, folks? It's a, it's a, it's a passage all about two ways, isn't it? And he extends that invitation to all of us to choose the narrow way, to choose to bear good fruit, to choose a firm foundation, to build your life on him and on his teaching, on, on the, the reality of the cross, that he's come to pay the price for our sins, that we can, we can be freed from sin and come into eternal life. Or we can choose wide gate, poor fruit, bad foundation. And ultimately, Jesus' words of, I don't know you. That's the choice. It's a sobering word, but it's God's word to us. It's the difference between knowing things about God and actually knowing him. And I think that's what that passage gets to as well. You can know lots about God without really knowing him. You can say, I did all this stuff. I knew all kinds of stuff about you, Jesus. And Jesus says, but I didn't know you. You realize, of course, like Satan and the demons know lots of stuff about Jesus. <laughs> right? Like, just because you know a lot about God doesn't mean you really know him. Like, even the bad guys know stuff about him. So, you know, that's not the point. It's not just to have lots of information about God. The point is to have your heart transformed by him, to be shaped by him. And so he calls us into obedience and repentance and into faith. So let me pray for you, and then we're going to come to the table. And as we come to this table, let it be a, a, a choosing, a fresh which path I'm going to be on, right? I'm choosing this path, the path of Jesus, the path that leads to true life. It's a path that's wrought with trouble along the way, but because I know where I'm headed and I know who guides me and who's with me, I, I'm going to be okay, right? This is the path I choose. So as we come to the table, let it be a choosing afresh the path. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. It's a it's a, it's a word that cuts to the heart, that makes us evaluate our decisions and where we're at in our lives and our attitudes. Like, do we even want to follow you? Is it, really, is it really like that? It cuts into all those thoughts and questions. And this morning, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us in our hearts that uh, you do love us so much. You put the choice before us and you love us so much you don't force us to make, to make the right choice. You actually want us to choose it. Because if you forced us to, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be a real choice. It wouldn't really be doing it out of love. It would just be robots. But you put the choice before us and you say, Lord, you, you, you invite us to choose, to actually want to follow you. Ah, Lord, that freedom is an incredible gift. And so, Lord, this morning as, as we are faced with the choice, narrow gate, good food, good fruit, firm foundation, or, or wide gate, empty life, poor foundation. Lord, may we choose the right path. May we not just in this moment choose to follow you, but Lord, I pray that you would help us 
every single day, each and every moment, Lord, to choose the good in the moments that are maybe especially difficult in our lives, that you would help us to discern the good. Lord, those that are facing real struggles in life right now, and it it feels especially troubling. The storms have hit. There's people here today, Lord, that feel really in the middle of the storm. And I pray, Father, that we would cling to you as our firm foundation, knowing that you will get us through this and that ultimately we will find rest and peace in you and in your goodness. The storm won't last forever. You will have the victory. And so, Lord, even as we come to this table, may it be uh, a way for us as we get out of our seats and come and receive your body and your blood. May it be a reminder that you're the path. You're the one we choose. You're the one that gives us true life. We pray that you would uh, call us and settle in our hearts, Lord, uh, that invitation that you do love us so much and you invite us to follow you. And Jesus, I just pray this morning, if there's anyone here, if uh, just as, as we're praying, as our heads are bowed, as eyes are closed, if you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus. Maybe you've, you've been on that wide path. You've never chosen the narrow path and you want to this morning. All it need to do is, is in the, in, even in the stillness of your heart, is to say, Lord, I invite you into my life. I choose you. I choose the narrow path. I want to follow you, Jesus. I repent of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me. I love you. I want to follow you. And if that's you this morning, if you've prayed that prayer, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. So, Lord, we pray that as we come to this table, it would be a choosing afresh to follow you. In your name. Amen. Amen. Invite the worship team.